Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode is part two of our three-part series with Eric Helms, where we discuss all things to do with Eric's nutritional hierarchy from his manual, the Muscle and Strength Pyramid Nutrition Manual. I hope you guys really enjoy part two. Eric Helms, it's an absolute pleasure to have you come back on to my podcast for your third episode and part two of our uh, the um, Muscle and Strength Pyramid Nutritional Manual, and we're going through the nutritional hierarchy. We left off, we just finished up on the micronutrients on the last episode, so we're just getting in now to meal timing and meal frequency. Um, before we get into that though, anything new in your world? Are, are you are you Dr. Eric Helms yet, or when, when can I call you Dr.? <laughs> well, first, thanks for having me back on for the third time. I feel like if we do this a fourth time, maybe we should introduce each other to our, our parents. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I will be Dr. Helms if all things go well after my defense, um, which will probably happen anywhere between, oh, probably a, a one to three months from now, uh, as I submit in a few weeks back and take some time for the examiners to look at it, and then I'll be... Um, having a chat with the examiner so so hopefully sometime in august or september i will be dr helms if all goes well sweet sweet wish you the best of luck now with your defense and fully deserved thanks man i appreciate it all right all right my man all right brother let's uh let's get in then to uh meal frequency meal timing you know what it's actually kind of uh it's like most things it's like almost serendipity because it's only just lately that i was talking about this to a group of students uh, on last Sunday, and the uh, lady was asking me, you know, is it is it not better to eat more meals a day? It stokes metabolism, and I was like, from from my knowledge of the literature, there's nothing yet to prove that. So, uh, let's get into your thoughts around meal time and meal frequency. And again, I suppose like we've said before in previous conversations, context is king, and so mm. obviously it's going to depend. But give us your whole thought process about meal time and meal frequency, and how maybe different strategies work for different people depending on what their goals are. Certainly, and I think you hit on the, on the main point with that last uh, last few words of that question, and that it is about uh, strategies and tactics and what seems to work best for most people. Um, this is a broad area, really, when, when you think about it. I mean, there's everything from intermittent fasting uh, to the, the 80s and 90s thought process of eating more frequently to have a, a higher metabolic rate, uh, like you mentioned, uh, to peri-workout nutrition. Uh, and then peri-workout nutrition itself is very different depending on what you're doing, whether you're a weekend warrior, a marathon runner, uh, or, you know, in, in various other sporting activities. Um, there's perspective from muscle gain and performance. There's perspective from uh, fat loss and adherence over time. So, yeah, I think the most important thing just to remind everybody is that the meal frequency uh, and really nutrient timing in general is pretty high up on the pyramid and that's because if assuming you are still eating the same amount of calories same amount of macronutrients a lot of the gross the gross body composition changes would be the same regardless of how you split it up uh, you know within reason and uh, probably some of the old kind of um, myths that still abound are, are related to eating more frequently quote-unquote stoking the metabolic fire when really that's that's not quite the case you know um, if anything, the only thing that seems to affect uh, energy expenditure and uh, kind of the metabolism of how you 
consume foods independent of macronutrients and uh, calorie content might be how regular you are with your meals. There is some limited research showing uh, that if you were to eat a drastically different meal schedule on a regular basis and never really kind of settle into a pattern, uh, that that can uh, result in some slightly worse metabolic outcomes in terms of uh, just how well you process uh, nutrients. But um, really, if you think about it, like if you were to eat two big meals, you'd get two large spikes in energy expenditure as you try to deal with those meals. If you eat six small meals for the same amount of calories, you get six small ones, but the total uh, energy expenditure and the way it affected you would probably be the same. Um, so that's kind of from the fat loss perspective. Um, but more importantly than, than any effect on energy expenditure is really um, what is sustainable, uh, what meshes well with your lifestyle. Mm. And I think this is where the kind of the intermittent fasting crowd originally came from is saying, hey, you don't have to eat every two to three hours. Um, because what that does, especially on a diet and especially in people with a low calorie intake, say, um, you know, a short woman would be a great example. Six meals turns into these little multi hundred calorie snacks that if anything, just kind of tease you and remind you that you're, <laughs> you're dieting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were to break that up into three or four meals, uh, all of a sudden now you, you might feel a little more satiated and you're not constantly being reminded of having to eat and uh, increasing food focus. And there's a fair amount of research that shows that meal frequencies that are either too high or too low, say outside of the range of three to six, uh, start to cause issues with with, uh, increased hunger. Uh, And it makes sense if you think about it. If you're eating a very, very small number of meals, that's a long period of time between meals uh, where you might get hungry. And if you're eating a very high meal frequency, you're never quite uh, sated at any, any given meal. And each meal is, you know, really coming so so soon after the last one that you never stop thinking about food. In terms of, um, like, obviously, again, different individuals, so like the average Joe versus an athlete versus somebody who's, you know, maybe more towards some type of performance measure or performance goal, like stepping on stage. Um, I definitely think, I love the way you touched on lifestyles that you think, because you often hear, like, people like, you know, you get to like an average Joe client comes and they usually only eat three times a day. And then this person in their head's like, no, you have to eat six times a day. It's just the way it is. And it's just like, mm-hmm. that's just not going to happen. But in, in terms of the average Joe, do, do you think that the, like, so general population clients, you know, who's really just goes to the gym three times a week just for help, we'll say, do you think in, 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 with them, they like that if it did fit their lifestyle, three square meals a day is enough to get enough, of their say they'll definitely get their caloric needs met but do you think that's enough meal frequency to get uh, optimal protein spacing for health typically not um for health yes but but for performance or for um you know maximizing muscle retention during a diet or, or maximizing muscle gain um you know during a period where they're trying to put on muscle mass it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, there's, there is, does seem to be basically there, there's a, there's a fair amount of what I would call mechanistic, uh, research, uh, that looks at muscle pro I'm uh, sorry, um, protein spread. So protein spread theory basically says that, Hey, uh, when you consume protein, um, there's a certain amount required to get a, a maximal anabolic response. Uh, which is basically reaching peak levels of muscle protein synthesis, which is just the, uh, the synthetic response uh, to eating a meal of creating new proteins, right? 
and then there's going to be a refractory period, which just means that you can't elicit that same response again for a while uh, until that signal is relaxed, and then you can do it again. And that can roughly occur every three to four hours at the earliest. Uh, so theoretically, eating a uh, high-quality protein serving or you know a lot of a low-quality protein serving every four hours or so would maximize anabolism. Um, and that amount would, would differ depending on the, um, the, the quality of the protein. Basically, it's leucine content. Um, of course, it's more complex than that. And there's not just uh, muscle protein synthesis, but there's also muscle protein breakdown. And uh, it, it, that is suppressed while the other one is elevated. So there's um, competing theorists in this area, some who would say there is not a maximal you know, anabolic limit to, to, to a meal, that you're not only uh, increasing synthesis, but you're also suppressing breakdown when you eat food. So that's why various meal spreads, maybe, you know, one meal with 80 grams of protein and the two with 20 and 30 uh, could be similar to four splits of 30. Mm. Um, and there's others who go, no, 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 no. You know, protein synthesis is the, the primary thing that's going to be dictating that. Um, uh, and unfortunately, at this stage, we just don't have long-term data that's looking at um, different types of spreads with realistic training programs and looking at actual outcomes such as strength or hypertrophy. Uh, most of these are short-term studies that are only looking at the actual snapshot of muscle protein synthesis. Um, so, you know, the safe way to hedge your bets here is to simply have anywhere between three to six meals and roughly spread your total protein intake for the day. Uh, and I just refer people back to our previous issue, uh, pre issue, our previous podcast. Where we talked about what's a reasonable level of protein intake for, for any given person. And then as a final kind of, uh, you know, cherry on top is just make sure that one of those protein servings is one to two hours before training and one to two hours afterwards. Uh, and you've taken advantage of what might theoretically be a period where you get an even more elevated response to consuming protein, uh, that would be directed towards muscle. But, um, yeah, I think this is one of those things where, while there's not great research on this topic, looking at it from an applied perspective, there is a lot of research showing that, um, in general, when protein is matched, the timing seems to have a minor effect at best. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I, of course, more research needs to be done in this area and in different states, say, like, during a calorie deficit or during a surplus, um, and, uh, you know, obviously other macronutrients have an effect on suppressing muscle protein breakdown. So it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's not a, a very straightforward topic, even though the, the muscle protein synthesis data takes kind of a reductionist approach and tries to isolate it down to just what's the MPS response, which I think is probably a little too uh, isolated and, and not nuanced enough. And I, I think probably doesn't acknowledge what really happens over time. But um, as a safe bet, anyone who's especially interested in, in hypertrophy and muscle retention, if you spread things out over three to six meals, have, you know, same with your, your, your training session, you're probably going to maximize any theoretical benefits there. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 pretty much, you know, what, that's pretty much what, what I would, uh, where my current thought process is on that question, that's pretty much what I expected um, your answer to be. But just one thing I'd love to get your thought on, and it may even sound like a bit like, real bro type of question but just i'd like to get your thoughts on it it, it and I'll, I'll put a bit of my thoughts to see what you think too like is it true that 
if you do, if you were to go three to four hours without some type of protein intake, that you start to go a bit catabolic. And my thought process would be that, well, surely it would depend on the bolus of protein you had in your previous meal and how long those amino acids stay in your blood. Because some, I'm sure there's some amino acid profiles that will stay in your blood longer. And again, the size of the protein bolus you had in your previous meal. But like, is there like a general, like, you know, okay, three to four hours if it was this, like at the lower end of a bolus you got in versus let's say you got a higher bolus of protein that might shove it up to six or seven hours. But like, like say for instance, even after a long sleep, Eric, are we in a catabolic state? Or like if I if I don't eat for ten hours, have I added into some muscle mass? Like, is that really true? And is it more so that it's if we're talking about purely optimizing muscle building for someone stepping on stage versus again someone who's just walking around with kind of more general health and longevity as their goal? Yeah, and actually, you know, I, I should have been a little more nuanced in what I said and explained that ninety nine percent of this research is done with whey protein. Uh, in isolation, so yeah. no carbohydrates, no fat, uh, no fiber, and that actually draws most likely a a really inaccurate picture of what happens in the real world, yeah. where our meals consist of carbohydrates, fat, and protein, and they have you know many things that'll slow down digestion. Yeah. So the uh, entrance of amino acids into the blood is is not going to follow that same pattern at all. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know when you when you're eating an adequate amount of calories and a good spread of macronutrients. That, that that period is probably spread out a lot longer and you're incorporating you know amino acids much more slowly into muscle. So, you know, instead of seeing these spikes that you'd see in whey protein research, it's just taken in water with nothing else over a period of you know two thirds of a day, uh, we're probably seeing not as high of spikes, but much more uh, of kind of these rounded parabolas and, and the area under the curve for muscle protein synthesis is probably still the same. Um, so yeah, you're right. Um, given say four or five meals a day and eight hours of sleep and a mixed spread of, of macronutrients and a fair amount of calories, you're probably seeing very few points where you're you know, quote unquote going catabolic. Mm. Um, and it very much depends on the type of protein you consume. Like there's a fair amount of research looking at, you know, casein now, which um, the way it's digested and kind of clots in the gut means that there's a slower release of amino acids in the bloodstream. And uh, you, know, you may see a much slower uh, release uh, over time, and that's why kind of you know some supplement companies will suggest you know take take casein before bed. Uh, of course, the same thing can be achieved with you know just an actual meal uh, where fiber and fat uh, would slow down the digestion, and and animal proteins also. You know, like the steak takes a long time to digest. So um, realistically, yeah, that's one of the reasons why in the real world it probably might not make nearly the difference it does in research. Uh, when they're using, you know, high quality whey protein, which has a very quick uh, digestion and incorporation rate. You know, very important. Uh, it's a fantastic answer, and thanks a million for your insight there. A, sure, a, no worries. A very uh, important aspect of this chapter was uh, this idea of diet breaks, and I think that's a huge topic um, within the book, and just a huge topic in general, because again, you know as well as I do. And what a lot of listeners listen in that everyone has very unique relationships towards food and you know this concept of the word diet or and then people it's not a diet it's a lifestyle and then this thing of cheat meals or free meals so this idea then of diet breaks and planned diet breaks I think is a very important concept to get across to people because it can be very liberating for a lot of people who have I suppose let's say have unhealthy relationships with food you know so Maybe if, if you could uh, touch on the topic of diet breaks and um, you know your views on it. 
Yeah, certainly. So, um, I'll, yeah, it's, it's interesting. A, a lot of the the nutrient timing and, and um, meal frequency chapters is partially about you know dispelling these myths about you know stoking the metabolic fire. Or, mm how many meals per day you must eat, which largely anytime someone tells you must about meal frequency, they're, they're being hyperbolic. But there are some cool things that aren't just myth-busting that are actually potentially uh, useful tools for, for the dieter especially. Uh, and these, these come down to what have been coined as refeeds and diet breaks. Um, and the diet break itself is a pretty interesting topic. Uh, there was a study done um, where the researchers, rightly so, wanted to examine what happened when people broke their diet, hence the term diet break. Yeah. Uh, and they had two groups dieting with a similar approach, uh, and except one group, what they had to do was they, they made them take two weeks at, a, at basically maintenance calories, and they wanted to see what happened when they broke their diet. And they figured that this would really derail them, and they'd have trouble getting back onto the diet afterwards, and that they would lose less weight than the other group, have more dropouts, etc., uh, but the exact opposite happened. Um, the group that took the diet break lost the same amount of weight as the other group. There wasn't a difference there in terms of statistics and no dropouts and everything was, was hunky-dory. Um, and this perplexed the, uh, the researchers, but it makes sense if you think about it. Um, when people actually break their diet, it's because they've really ran themselves into the ground. They've, they've had enough. They're tired of the diet. You know, they're, they're stressed out by it. And they crack under pressure versus saying, hey, in three weeks, we're going to spend a week, we're going to eat maintenance, and that's what we're going to do, um, which is very different. It's kind of the difference between getting oil changed after your car is broken down <laughs> or getting your oil changed as you're supposed to every four months or so. Um, and uh, so this is a really useful technique, and um, it's probably a better approach than, than you suggested, like things like you know, cheat meals or cheat days, which seem to imply an inherent issue with the diet itself and yeah. completely lacks sustainability. Um, so from a general pop perspective, uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the term diet break or the term refeed um, has a, a more positive connotation, but B um, probably implies that the, the diet itself is a little more sustainable. But, you know, if you're, if you're got a large amount of weight to lose to try to achieve a healthy body weight, um, it's probably a good idea to incorporate a diet break every, every few months. Um, you know, one week of maintenance calories, still tracking to some degree, although it can be looser and a little more relaxed, you know, just to ease the, the mental strain of, of being uh, tracked and measured and weighed with your food, I think is a very useful tool and it can make the overall uh, diet more sustainable. It's kind of a moment to take your head above water and get a fresh breath of air before you dive back in. Um, and from my perspective as a coach of, you know, weight class restricted strength athletes and bodybuilders uh, where the diet isn't sustainable, uh, nor should it be, you know, being in stage condition is, you know, basically the equivalent of peak performance for any athlete, which can never be ma maintained and requires a you know, period of periodization recovery and, you know, managing the, the stresses and, and injuries, uh, mental and physical like that come during a season. Uh, the diet break is very useful to make sure that, uh, the person actually gets to the stage as intact as possible. Uh, mentally, really, um, and uh, from an energy uh, expenditure perspective, as you know, any time spent in a in a surplus or in maintenance is time when you're probably not kind of circling the drain of, of metabolic adaptation, if you will, uh, where getting very very lean typically reduces your energy expenditure to some degree, and you can mitigate that by taking a diet break approach or on a shorter term a refeed approach, which is you know a 24 or 48 hour period where you're eating at maintenance, which is less effective but still serves the basic same purpose. 
I was actually that was going to be my next question with the refeeds and this concept of uh, you know a one day refeed versus a, a multiple day refeed and I you know like the the original sort of hypothesis was that you know it, it would you know it would upregulate thyroid uh, hormone output and you know it would re kind of re upregulate your metabolism and I think from Lyle's work and even some of the stuff I've heard you say that 24 hours probably isn't enough to to upregulate those systems in enough time you might get it off a, a multi-day refeed but I suppose it's nearly more so just a psychological benefit from it more so than anything else. So maybe just touch on that if you want to. Yeah, and so, so for the same reasons that a, uh, a diet break can be useful, so can a, can a refeed. And obviously, you know, a week versus two days versus one day, you know, you're going to kind of have this declining beneficial effect mm -hmm. of, of being out of a calorie deficit. Um, so, you know, the, the, the original concept was, hey, we can get a bump in leptin, which is kind of our the master metabolic hormone, or at least is thought to be, uh, by, by eating in a surplus or, or eating at maintenance and coming out of a deficit. And this will have, you know, downstream effects on energy expenditure that will be a net win um, for, for fat loss. And now we know that mathematically, it's not really a benefit. You know, the increase in energy expenditure you get from eating maintenance for a single day is very small. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's offset by, you know, removing a deficit for the day. Uh, and, and this is even true when, when you go into a week or two days, um, but there's a lot more going on there. You know, you're going to be replenishing glycogen. You're going to be improving performance. Um, you're going to be making the diet more sustainable long term. I'm sure your, your, uh, your neat activity would probably go up, which would counteract it as well. Most likely. Yeah. And, that, and that's something that's rather understudied. And I, I think there would probably be an effect there. Uh, and I'd love to see future research on refeeds and and speculation as to, to why they may or may not work in an applied setting. But I, I have I, I have had very positive experiences with using regular refeeds and diet breaks in my athletes. Um, but uh, yeah, like you said, there is a psychological benefit. Uh, and when I say a refeed, I do mean that it's, it's still tracked. It's treated like a regular day, just with higher targets for calories and, and macronutrients. And Eric, um, how, how do you, go, sorry to interrupt you, how, how do you go about calculating how many calories someone should get on a refeed? Because I know Precision Nutrition kind of had like, I think if it was like a, a more regular refeed, like I can't remember the exact details now, I think it was like every three to four days versus like one that was like every 10 days. And then it also depended on person's kind of body fat levels but they had certain amount of calculations where they'd say you know uh like you know 1.5 times your regular caloric intake on your deficit like multiply it by that and there you know so that you can have that amount of calories that day or i think like at their highest it was like almost three times or something like that i could be wrong now but they had different calculations for different sort of refeed strategies i'd have to go back and check that so don't quote me on that but how, how would you go about calculating how much so much to eat on a refeed day I just remove the deficit, um, and, and assuming the person has been following any of my work or or has some quantifiable way of setting up deficit, then they should know approximately, you know, where their maintenance is or was. Um, you know, if if they are trying to lose a pound a week, they know they're in a roughly 500 calorie deficit. So you just put that back in. Uh, that's typically how I operate, uh, and just put them at maintenance for either one or two days in a row. Um, so yeah, and if you don't know <laughs> how much of a deficit you're in, that that's probably kind of first port of call to adjust your diet and actually start doing you know seven day averages and tracking to establish your maintenance, which is you know kind of what we discussed back in the uh, first episode where we started talking nutrition. Um, but yeah, the refeeds are are, are understudied, but but interesting and, and useful. 
um, you know, like I said, from a performance and then potentially muscle retention strategy. Um, but there's also some effects. Here's the thing is, is uh, when you talked about the 24 versus 48 hour refeed is that um, this is based on a couple studies looking at women that found that um, 48 hours of, of eating at maintenance was more effective than one day eating at a massive surplus for reversing some of the down regulations of female sex hormones that would lead to amenorrhea. So the loss of the menstrual cycle, that's a, a real concern in, in women as it can, you know, it's part of the, the female athlete triad and in dieting athletes or, or performance athletes uh, who are, you know, energy restricted or have a very high energy expenditure, uh, you can see, you know, long-term muscle, sorry, long-term bone loss uh, along with other physiological effects um, that, that can come from not having a menstrual cycle. Mm. Um, and these seem, these hormones that, that are related to the menstrual cycle seem to parallel uh, things like thyroid and other uh, metabolic hormones. So it's a decent marker in women for, uh, you know, how, how negatively impacted the body is from the diet in terms of a uh, down regulation of energy expenditure perspective. Um, so interestingly enough, you know, one big uh, bolus for a day, you know, or not really a bolus, but one big day of, of overeating in a massive amount uh, is not as effective as just two days of maintenance uh, when, when someone has been restricted. Uh, and that kind of makes sense from a armchair evolutionary biology perspective is, you know, you, you may find, you know, a limited source of food for one day and, you know, you or the tribe might eat it, but that's not necessarily uh, something that you want to upregulate your energy expenditure because if that was just one day of food, you know, how are you going to survive? So it probably makes sense that there is both a food availability and a food amount kind of signal uh, or more or less basically a time and magnitude component to feeding that's going to have an impact on the body. Yeah. And, and do something towards reversing the effects of dieting. Yeah. Um, however, even though it's not necessarily reversing something, it is certainly a day that's not spent at a deficit. Mm -hmm. So there is some effect on, on kind of that circling of the drain uh, that I mentioned before, even with a single day refeed, and you're still replenishing glycogen. There's still a psychological break. There still might be an effect on acute performance in that day or the subsequent day, depending on how you train. So it's, it's not to say that single day refeeds are, are not useful. It also depends on what frequency they come. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there is a fair amount of research on what's called um, intermittent caloric restriction compared to daily caloric restriction. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of those methods is what's called an every other day refeed. And uh, there's limited evidence to suggest that that might be a useful strategy um, for, you know, fat loss and, and, and muscle retention sometimes, but not always outperforming you know, kind of that daily caloric restriction approach where there's no refeeds ever. Um, so, you know, again, that, uh, that, that frequency and magnitude seems to matter in terms of refeeds. You know, so 48 hours might be useful or perhaps just more frequent 24 hour refeeds, uh, you know, in, in addition to, you know, diet breaks every couple months, uh, those, those are frequently strategies that I will use, uh, to help a competitor, you know, reach the finish line with as much muscle mass as possible eating as much food as possible, doing as few, as few sessions of cardio as possible, but still getting into the requisite shape they need to. So me being a nerd, I actually just pulled out my precision nutrition one to make sure I got this right. So they, they split it into infrequent big refeeds, which is like every 7 to 14 days, and they would multiply your caloric intake and your restriction by 3 to 3.5 times. So they're saying if you're on 2,000 calories a day, try not to go above six to 7,000. So that's, that's if it's a big and frequent one, like so basically almost every two weeks, that's 7 to 14 days. And then they have frequent moderate ones, 
which is about every three to four days, I say, and you'd multiply your caloric intake by one and a half times. So if you're on a 2,000 caloric diet, you'd take in about 3,000 calories in your refeed day. So that's, that's kind of how they've done it. But it's interesting to get your thought process. And something you said there, which I really liked too, was that I suppose we kind of look at these things in isolation. That, oh, the single day refeed doesn't really do much to maybe upregulate certain uh, metabolic process in the body. But like you, I was literally just about to say this or ask you this the next question, but you just touched on it. You're like, yeah, but the restorage of glycogen could then lead to a better performance in the gym the next day, which would probably which would probably be one of your better days in the gym because you've been a caloric deficit for the last while. So, and then that performance could lead then to, you know, higher energy burns and you know, like that could lead to uh, uh, some type of positive results as well in terms of like body composition change or or the caloric burn if you add it up, say the next refeed with that process and the next refeed and then add that up over the course of your whole, whatever, 10, 16 or 12, 16 week um, training protocol. Exactly right. You know, so, so to get into, it's a really, really great condition for, for physique competitors. I mean, sometimes you're dieting six to eight months. Mm. And so, you know, a very almost unmeasurable impact over one week becomes something important after 32 of those weeks have added up. Yeah. And, um, you know, one thing that, that, that I, I would say Lyle has, has talked about probably the most and, you know, perhaps as well in precision nutrition is that the, the theoretical benefit of refeeds increases as you get leaner. You know, so from a practical perspective, typically what I do is I move from a once per week refeed approach with intermittent, uh, you know, diet breaks throughout the, you know, the, the big picture diet to then increasing the frequency of those refeeds. So I all often go from once per week eventually having a 48 hour refeed and I may stay there throughout the whole diet um, you know five dieting days two refeed days but eventually I, I may even throw in a third um, you know separated from the 48 hour refeed 20 uh, period another another day at maintenance so they're actually only dieting on four days you know they might have two days in a row say the weekend and then Wednesday or something like that um, if I think they'd benefit from it and that's when you can really start to manipulate the training around high days and kind of dig on those those other days or keep the training days easy depending on what time of day they train and all that so yeah typically the refeed frequency should should go up as one gets leaner to try to kind of offset that that constant circling of the drain that i keep talking about uh, of course that does mean that your low days have to be lower um, but at the same time your rate of weight loss should be slowing down purposefully as you get leaner i typically am you know, closer to trying to lose 1% of body weight per week at the start of a diet and closer to about 0.5% of the body weight uh, per week at the end of the diet, which means that, you know, you don't have to create as much of an absolute deficit on any given day. So having fewer days dieting typically kind of washes out that, that effect of any, any given day being really low or any given day uh, being, you know, very unsustainable. Just a, a question I want to ask you too, uh, probably more so to do with health, maybe more so than performance, but have you ever looked into any of this um, like thought process that from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, we were meant to eat more carbs in the summer because the life cycle was longer and therefore gain a bit of weight and it was really a pre-hibernation state and that the, the fact that the life cycle was longer and the temperatures were higher and carbohydrate availability was around, that put us in like a sort of a... Uh, again, a pre-hibernation, like getting us ready for a winter that was going to come. And then in the winter, we had more darkness, no carbs, more of a ketogenic state. And then that, like uh, what we don't, what we basically do is we reverse these kind of processes of the small bit of weight gain, the slight bit of higher blood pressure, the slight bit of 
maybe higher blood lipids um, through the hibernation of the winter. And a lot of people hypothesize people, they're kind of like some researchers hypothesize due to these sort of seasonal cycles and circadian rhythms and food availability that the fact now that we basically have perpetual summer all the time, like because we have heated homes, we've got light 24 hours a day and we've global transport of foods, so we've carbohydrate availability all the time that we're basically in perpetual pre-hibernation mode. And that's one of the, could be one of the driving causes of like chronic degenerative diseases. Like, would you ever think much about that at all, Eric? Do you think there's anything like good thought process to that? I know this is we're kind of moving away from maybe more performance, which is what we talk about, but just in general health. Well, you know, I, I tend to stay in my lane, and this isn't something I've I've ever researched or thought about. It's an interesting theory, kind of that um, seasonal rhythm versus like you know your your typical circadian rhythm that people like to talk about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I. I, I actually don't know, and um, I, I don't know that there's any good research on that. It, it, like you said, it's an interesting hypothesis. Yeah, funny. It's, I don't um, think you'll find any hard hard. It's just kind of the, the hypothesis of it. Like, yeah, I was just mm. wondering. I, I was just wondering too, because even if it was, say, related back to performance, you wonder then at certain times of year would it be easier to get certain results in performance measures or even body composition goals because of maybe are you going against certain evolutionary. Uh, aspects you know so like eating ton of carbs and exercise under well we know that we know that there's definitely something to circadian rhythms in terms of light and dark cycles without question you know so definitely like i would i would be surprised if there was something going on that lasted over multiple seasons to be honest in the body um i mean i I think the circadian rhythm stuff that makes sense you know um and it, it maybe it's not necessarily the, the seasonal changes as such, um, but perhaps just that, you know, we've forever been through periods where there's food availability and mm-hmm. then foods and periods of where there's not yeah. food availability. And this tends to regulate our energy intake and prevent, you know, excess fat gain. And ever since we get the ability to make food available 24-7, 365, now it's much easier to eat in the surplus. Uh-huh. And we don't have to go out and hunt our meals or till yeah. the fields. Uh, to the same degree, uh, we can just go to the grocery market. So some of it may be less the that our body knows when it's winter or knows when it's summer, but more so just that the availability of food that was uh, you know traditionally only in the summer is now mm. all year round. Mm. Yeah, have you ever looked into any? Um, uh, Danny, if Danny Lennon hears this, he might roll his eyes. But anyway, <laughs> have you ever looked into any of Jack Cruz's work? Not familiar. I mean, I just, I just wonder because he, he's a neurosurgeon, and to be honest, he, he, he's kind of, he's so far ahead that like he, he basically like he, he's so far ahead of me in terms of his knowledge that like he could be saying something there and he could be talking absolute horseshit, but I, I, I'm not smart enough to, 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 to be able to call him out. But what I will say is that the more physiology and science I have learned over the past two to three to four years, the more of what he has previously said and is saying seems to make a lot more sense. So he's very big into. Uh, you know, utilizing sort of an evolutionary perspective to look at health, but he's very big on um, circadian rhythms in terms of our light and dark exposures and obviously temperature exposure from season to season. But he, he looks at health through basically electromagnetic, electromagnetic ma- magnetism, sorry, electric ma- magnetism. So like the actual magnetism of the earth, water and light. He says those are the three keys. So he, he looks at everything actually through physics. So like if you start talking about proteins, carbs, and fats, he won't even entertain the conversation. He's like, you need to go deeper than that. He's like, they, it's his whole thing is that at a quantum level in terms of electrons, neutrons, and protons, and uh, of how really we work as organisms. So 
But yeah, he's big into electromagnetism, water, and light. And he's like, light is the key. It's the absolute key. He keeps referring to this book, uh, light in in light in light in shape in shaping light, by this guy Roland Van Wyck, and it gets into all the physics about like how light basically shapes all organisms in the world and all like in terms of their um, physiological functions. So it's just interesting. Yeah, I would say just as a general thing, circadian rhythm probably is important in terms of health. Um, but anytime someone gets so deep into the weeds with the way or how things work and starts talking about quantum physics yeah. or complex physiology and talks over the audience's head uh, and can't put it into simple terms that are actionable or, or logical and can't cite you know nutrition and, and training research, which does talk about protein or, or physical activity, which does have a measurable impact in peer-reviewed research on on the body, then I, I would probably have my, my BS alert go up a little bit. I'm not saying, I'm not, again, I'm not familiar with his work, but yeah. no, I if you can't understand someone you're following, I, I would, just to all the listeners, I would typically caution that maybe they're blowing smoke, you know, or, or they would explain it to you in a way that you could understand. Yeah, yeah. And like, to be honest, I would be sort of, a, currently anyway, my thought process, I'm always a guy of Holcomb's razor, so like if there's two answers and one's really fucking complicated overhead, the other one's pretty simple. Usually the simple one's the most logical one. <laughs> like so, basically, like when someone's like, "I'm gaining weight," and people are like, "Oh, it's it's to do with this and this hormone and that hormone." This is like you're probably just eating too much food. It's quantum mechanics, man. Nothing to do with food. <laughs> <laughs> but like, because even I always use myself as a case study in that. Like I remember about two years ago, I was having some stomach issues, like just a constant bloat. And I and like you know I was like Jesus maybe I've got like H pylori or I'm not making enough stomach acid or maybe I've got like a parasite or something's not right. And then I just went like I made I did this like body transformation thing with with a, with a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, and, and uh, you know he just said just show me uh, show me what you eat in a daily daily you know on a, on a daily basis. And I showed him he goes he goes you eat good food but holy shit your portion sizes are way out of control. And he was just like you eat like three meals in one, and I was like hmm that might be why my stomach's bloated. And then once I like portioned out my my, my food was like my stomach was never a problem again like it was just purely down to my portion you know and then I was like they were putting all these mad theories in place where it was just a simple solution of you're just eating too much food in a meal yeah yeah it, that, that, I completely agree with that uh, philosophical perspective often you know I think some things are complex don't get me wrong um, but you know as practitioners especially we should be seeking to make things as simple as they can be uh, to help people you know have you know, agency and being able to do something about it. And yeah, often in, in nutrition and training, uh, the answers aren't that complex. You know, we're not, we're not building rocket ships. So, <laughs> so uh, Eric, I only, I'm on, we've got 38 minutes. I've about another 10 minutes and I, I, I definitely want to, uh, again, if we don't wrap up, we can always do part three, but in, in terms of, um, part four. It, yeah. Well, yeah. Part four. <laughs> part, part four. Visit, visit four, part three. You're right. Um, in, in terms then of the timing of the macronutrients, uh, and like, I suppose a common trend I see, you know, uh, well, because it's logical. I mean, so in your own book, in Israel's work, uh, John Meadows, it seems to me, you know, you don't want to take a large bolus of fat or hard, or hard digesting proteins in around your, your peri-workout nutrition, um, just due to the slow, slow GI, uh, ent- emptying, capacity and uh, you know you probably want to get the majority of your carbohydrates I suppose in around that very workout nutrition but maybe just just speak about like the timing of certain macronutrients um, throughout the day and I suppose you know uh, in render training 
it really depends on, on your sport. You know, for, for the average, let's say, bodybuilder or, or general pop person interested in changing their body composition, I really wouldn't worry about, you know, carbohydrate or, or fat too much at all outside okay. of don't eat a large bolus of it or things that digest slowly uh, right before training because mm-hmm. it might just make you uncomfortable. Um, you know, but, but in terms of, you know, a performance athlete, uh, you, you may actually be concerned with, with making sure there's enough, you know, energy availability, you know, for example, I know there's a fair amount of, you know, CrossFitters who might listen to some of my work because it does involve body composition change, strength, performance, and and barbell related work. Um, you know, if you're doing a two a day and, uh, you've got, you know, two different sessions in the day, yeah, you probably do want to make sure you're including some carbohydrate after that first session so that you do get, you know, rapid replenishment of glycogen so that you're not negatively affected in training, you know, later in the day. Um, but outside of, you know, just ensuring the foods you eat are um, easily digested and making sure you get some protein on either side of it, um, either the bodybuilder or the powerlifter or the strength athlete in general really wouldn't have to worry beyond that. Um, and I wouldn't be concerned with, you know, post-workout having, uh, you know, like fat or anything like that and slowing down digestion because it's not going to affect your performance and you're going to have circulating amino acids anyway in a real situation, especially if you've had a protein meal two hours prior. So the, uh, I think the impact allows a lot is pretty minor and allows much more flexibility than people, you know, might think when they start getting into the weeds with this stuff, you know, maybe if, uh, you worked out first thing in the morning fasted, then it would be a good idea to just have whey, uh, post-workout with maybe some carbohydrate just to kind of finally break the fast. Yeah, um, but, yeah. but in general, I wouldn't advise, you know, doing a hard training session first thing in the morning completely fasted unless you've got a track record of performing very well when doing that. Well, what, what are your, um, actually, before I ask that question, just, uh, I was, so yeah, I, I definitely agree in terms of what you said there, but the, the fat post trend, I think a lot of people worry about that too much, but I suppose it, yeah, the, the only, the most thing I would advise is that you just don't want a huge, huge feeding in general before kind of training. And again, I suppose it is going to depend versus, you know, in context of what the person's doing. Um, yeah, just I'd always recommend that you don't take a, a huge bolus of mainly fat as well just before training. But again, it's it's so individual. You can, I know people that can eat like a meal like ninety minutes, like a proper meal ninety minutes before they go into like a heavy session, and they're fine. And if someone ate that like within four hours of training, they'd be like, Bruh. so it's so individual too in terms of people's capacity. I suppose too, it depends on like your meals leading up into that meal too. Definitely, you know, you, I think that that that's the big thing is just. Uh play with different meal schedules and um yeah I, I i do find that large meals within one to two hours prior to a, a hard training session um can be problematic for probably most people but not everybody um mm-hmm. it depends on what a hard session is when you when you tell a you know a true high performance athlete what a hard session is versus telling a bodybuilder it's it's two different things you know yes. i mean yes. don't get me wrong you know a tough leg day is a tough leg day or you know a heavy session for power is a heavy session but it's typically not going to be, you know, gastrointestinally challenging to where you're trying not to throw up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, like you said, it's all context and individual. But um, but yeah, in general, you want to have food in you that's that's not going to be really super slowed by digestion of fat early on. Uh, sometimes it's just easy enough to get you know 10, 20 percent of your carbohydrate intake for the day, and you know a bit of lean protein two hours mm-hmm. prior, and then you know eat eat whatever the hell you want in terms of your normal, normal meal afterwards. Yeah. Um, that's typically a safe bet. Yeah, yeah. If if you had someone training multiple times a day, 
what would you do maybe then with their fat intake? Would you kind of put it into more smaller doses across the day to get it in, or would you say store it maybe till more the evening then if, if you're if you're like if you're if you're trained two or three times a day and those sessions are kind of more morning and afternoon? Yeah, I would probably keep it towards the evening. You know, assuming they've got a morning session and then an evening session, I would just keep the majority of it after the second session, yeah. uh, and then kind of smaller amounts throughout the rest of the day. Um, if there's a large gap of time between the two sessions, they could have it in there, you know, along with their post-workout carbs from the first from the first session. It yeah. just depends on, you know, how much total quantity of fat we're talking about, how many hours in between. You know, if we're looking at a, you know, 8 a.m. session and then a 6 p.m. session, yeah, they, they could probably get away with a full meal without restricting fat and take after that that uh, that first session. You know, even if you know, let's say it's you know 10 a.m. They train for two hours, um, and they're worried about you know, fat slowing down their glycogen, uh, you know, recompensation. It's, it's going to be a while before they get in there again. Uh, it probably won't make a huge difference. So, um, yeah, it, it, it depends, but if there's only four hours between then yeah, you might want to kind of have that between session period relatively low in fat just to expedite glycogen replenishment. Mm. Uh, love to get your thoughts there. This is the question I was going to ask you before we got to that. Love to get your thoughts then on faster training. Personally, I, I'm not a, I, like I can do it, like, and I actually feel pretty good, and actually my body seems to do okay fasting, but I, I'm I'm personally not a fan of it because just just like from reading physiology, like if you are doing something that's of an anaerobic nature, and your carbohydrate stores are low or your blood glucose is low, it does seem that your body would tap in then to a protein source because again fats can only be utilized at, at in an aerobic type environment, so if you're going to an anaerobic environment, it is more likely that you're going to get that sugar from an, from from a maybe a protein source again, like your skeletal muscle. And again, if you're trying to optimize, be it hypertrophy or body composition or just health in general, I don't even think it's healthy to be breaking down your muscles to be used as energy. But first of all, am I even right there in my science? And, and second of all, like what what are you, what's your thoughts on on fasted training? And by fasted, I'm talking about doing like high intensity type work. So whether it's like, you know, heavy bodybuilding type work or interval based type work or, you know, energy system work, that's, that's of an interval based. Yeah. The, the real question is, is, uh, whether or not that would be compensated for later in the day, you know, would yeah. you get a higher spike in muscle protein synthesis when you ate post-workout mm. from a fasted mm. training session than you would not. Um, and you might, you know, I haven't seen really good research on, uh, you know, comparing fasted weight training to non-fasted, but, I would agree, you know, from a physiological perspective, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense if your goal is to try to retain or build as much as possible. That said, I don't, and I don't think someone who, especially if they're in maintenance or in a surplus, did fasted training and just ate all their meals afterwards would, would lose muscle by any means. Yeah, yeah. You know, that would definitely result in a net gain. Um, and I think the main thing people should be paying attention to is, is performance. Uh, and, you know, in my experience, if it's a low volume, um, with, with adequate rest periods, kind of your typical kind of weight training session, um, then probably won't be an issue for most people. But some people do seem to be much more dependent on on uh, having food prior to training, or at least not being in a fasted state, I should say. So again, like uh, like the period workout nutrition conversation in general, it does come down to individual preference. But yeah, I, I think it probably makes sense to at least you know have a scoop away first thing in the morning. If, if you're going to go go train, no reason why not, really. 
um, even if it's just 30 minutes prior. That, that shouldn't be causing too much of a GI challenge, and yeah. uh, it should be you know preventing some of those those negative things that you uh, discussed from happening. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I do if I'm training anymore. Is just get some weighing to me, and it always always fine. So yeah, weighing maybe a, a fast digestion piece of fruit like a banana or something like that. I always do that, and feels I always feel great after it. Uh, it's an interesting point you make up even about maybe there's a super compensation effect maybe though know, with the fast that you know in fact you might make up for it later so that that could be something to potentially you know maybe someone might research just a, a final thing before I let you go um, I'll definitely have to get you back on then to do the supplements and that will be another hour in itself but it's all great because it's such great content the information is always fantastic uh, do you ever um, you know a lot of people always talk about carb cycling do you ever protein cycle I, I know a guy Paul McElroy he spoke about protein cycling where he'd actually even do days where he'd have you taking a lower amount of protein. Um, and again, his, his reason for that was just that there's adaptive resistance to everything. So he's like, if your protein intake's the same day in, day out, he's like, your body just kind of adapts to that continuous bolus all the time. And he believes that even just undulating your protein like you do with carbs or do it a, a certain variable in training is good for the body. Yeah, well, I'd be interested to see what research he can cite that would uh, support that. Yeah. I haven't seen any, and certainly there's there's you know decades of research showing that a, a constant protein intake that is higher than a, a lower intake seems to be beneficial from a body composition, satiety, and mm-hmm. health perspective. So I, I don't see any need to to cycle protein per se. Yeah. Um, however, you could certainly just give yourself a range, uh, you know, say 1.8 to 2.8 grams per kg, and uh, you know feel free to to change it within that range, and if, if and I think that would probably still have the similar effect to being a constant intake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, great stuff, great stuff. Eric, absolute pleasure to have you back on here. So I'll definitely have to get you back on to wrap up as supplements. And obviously your final chapter too, where you spoke more about like, you know, the lifestyle implications of, of having a healthy sort of relationship with your nutrition and whatnot, if that's okay with you. Of course. Always, always a pleasure to be on. Yeah, absolutely. So finally, uh, like, just again, I'll obviously link to our previous shows just in case someone has missed them for some reason. This is the first one they've heard, but uh, I'll link all that, everything in the show notes. And um, So just finally, I suppose, contact details and your, your up-and-coming appearance with uh, with the guys for the European Paralysis Summit. Yeah, for sure. So if, if you're interested in, in our content specifically for physique and strength athletes, check out 3dmusclejourney.com. Uh, if you're interested in, in reading the, uh, the books that we're discussing, uh, that's muscleandstrengthpyramids.com. Which are fantastic. Uh, if you say again. Which which are fantastic. They're they're my the they're the number one books I recommend to all students as the first read for training and nutrition because the way they're laid out they're just perfect. Thank you. An honor to hear you say that. Um, and then if you're interested in, in continuing education and staying up with uh, the research most applicable to uh, strength and physique athletes or anyone who's interested in you know power and strength performance or maximizing body composition changes uh check out our monthly applications and strength sport that's our research review myself greg knuckles and mike zerdos mm. and uh and yeah i will be in in ireland on uh the first weekend in in july yeah, july 1st and 2nd that's right for the european pilots and congress uh conference i'll be there with you know brett gibbs i'll be there with bryce lewis i'll be there with mike to share uh danny lennon will be hosting us um, it's going to be a good time for sure. Don't forget, and, uh, don't forget that, Greg. Of course, Greg Knuckles as well. That that guy. Yeah. He's not. He's you know he, he's kind of he's he's weak and he's kind of dumb. So yeah, you don't really. Go yeah. He, 
yeah, he's uh, he's unfortunately part of monthly applications and strength sport. You know, we needed to, uh, some guy with a beard just to kind of give us the powerlifting credibility. In, but in that, he'd be he'd be weak and dumb in an, in an alternate universe. The guy's a fucking genius and he's strong as shit. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty amazing. Very, yeah, very so. impressive individual, and he'll he'll be there as well. Um, and then actually, the following weekend, myself and Mike Zerdos will be in London. Nice. Uh, for those interested, and we'll be discussing. Uh, both diet and training periodization. So that'll be cool with uh, the SBS Academy, uh, Luke Johnson, Lawrence Judd, and that whole crowd. Nice, nice, great stuff, great stuff. Eric, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm delighted that you came back on this, and I, I'm actually kind of excited that we didn't finish because it gives me an excuse now to 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 get you back on again and, and wreck your head with more questions. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, just stay online for a sec. I'll have to say my goodbye. So, guys, part two of our nutritional hierarchy with Eric Helms. Like, what more information and what more you know depth of knowledge do you want? I mean, the guy's an absolute. You know, he he'll he'll be telling me not to say this, but he's you know he's a genius. He's 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 brilliant at breaking down what for a lot of people can be very complex and simplifying it, and that's the true art of someone who knows their craft. So he's a true master in what he does and I'm delighted to have him come back on and I can't wait to meet him now in three weeks down in Limerick so not only are you a fantastic coach and researcher Eric but you're an absolute gentleman so thank you so much for making time today thank you man I appreciate it alright guys uh, thanks for listening if you can share this out that would be great leave a review even better and uh, until next time everyone I'll talk to you soon stay well and be strong (laughs) 